weekly weights We lift weights and we are mates On the weekend we go on dates Weekly weights, Tim and Footy Weekly weights with Alex and Will You kind of screwed up the timing on that one, William. Yeah, I missed the first second. So the song actually starts with welcome to an episode of, and then we just picked it up from the weekly weights bit, but it is weekly weights. What episode is this? This is episode 128. Good grief. We have been going for a while, especially considering the hiatus, 128 episodes in. And what are we doing this time, Alex? So we're going to do another Q&A. We haven't done one in a long time. So I asked on my Instagram for people to give me questions and I picked the best around 10. Yep. And Top 10. Yeah. Let's, should we get straight into it? Yeah. Let's just rip in. All right. So first question from at lifting cats, what impact do you think Braun and its virtual comps will have in Australia? So I had to Google this. Me too. I actually, I didn't know what Braun was. Um, in fact, I'm bit, I think in some ways, because like the last two years now has basically been like nearly no competitive powerlifting for me. Like I haven't competed myself, but I've also only coached at comps. Like I do two or three and then have a six month break because of COVID stuff. I think a lot of the goings on in the community that normally I'd just hear about in passing straight up didn't hear about. But Braun is an app um, and I believe it was developed in the UK and they've been hosting virtual powerlifting competitions. So I think they have like a window of time in which people have to record themselves using the app performing lifts. They submit them and then people get ranked by their totals and stuff. And I think as a concept, it's really cool. I don't think anything like that is going to usurp proper competitions. I say proper competitions, competitions conducted in person underneath a federation banner or anything like that. Um, But I actually do see things like that becoming much more popular. And I'll let Alex give his two cents um, before I go into too much depth on these thoughts. But when I went and had a look at it, one of the big things I thought about was, um, was the way things operate in the video game community and some of the ways in which I actually think that 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 has been like a real positive for people in that because video games are played by people obviously dispersed across countries and continents and things. And the way in which they're able to interact and compete online builds quite strong communities in a really cool way, but it needs to be decentralized. And that's where, that's where I have deeper thoughts. So Alex, you let us know what you think and then I'll go yeah, back on to that. You mentioned federations and this is actually under the IPF banner. If you really, yeah. If you didn't see that on the website, so no. it is technically, I don't know how exactly it would work. And I don't think that you could ever compare like a competition like this to an in-person competition. And I wrote down the same thing that you just said, Will, is that I don't see it as a way of replacing in-person competition. Like you're never going to see someone put up a total on the internet and go, oh yeah, he would have beat Taylor out with a world if he didn't actually. Actually people do that all the time on Instagram. <laughs> That's yeah, and, exactly how Instagram works. And anyone with anyone with any credit would say, well, he didn't actually beat him on the platform on the same day. And I think like, I don't think that's ever going to be replaced, but what it does do is it opens the door for a lot of people who are on the fence 
with powerlifting and then it may get them into the community into the community doing those in-person competitions after they do like a a couple of online ones um and it, it kind of reminds me of some of the stuff that crossfit used to do in the early days they used to have like regional comps where you would send in your workout and then they would mm. email you and tell you oh, okay you've been selected to go to this state competition you know to qualify for the crossfit games or whatever so like that obviously helped crossfit blow up and you know stuff like this could could help powerlifting continue to grow if you know people who are doing weightlifting or doing bodybuilding or doing crossfit want to dabble in powerlifting and then like it but yeah, yeah it's not going to take it's not going to take over powerlifting and you mentioned gaming like with gaming, you can play the same game as someone at the same time as them anywhere in the world. Whereas with powerlifting, we don't have the technology yet to like to do something like that. Unless you could get 10 people on a Zoom and that's a powerlifting group and then you go, all right, camera A, you're up on squat and you got someone like switching between cameras and making it an actual competition, then like maybe. But yeah, that, but that seems a bit far away. Well, there's two things to talk about there. One is there was actually a Twitch quote unquote powerlifting competition run recently. So Twitch being the big streaming service, um, which made no pretense at being like a normal powerlifting comp, but was a really good fun thing to do to grow exposure in which people were lifting in lots of different locations simultaneously and sending videos in. Um, and I think that was really cool. But the way in which it relates to gaming for mine is actually about how how sort of games are how games operate and how the communities function in them so in a lot of games that develop a really strong community or um or a competitive community there's this weird like democratization of the game itself where the studio that develops the game doesn't necessarily then say okay well this is how how the game will be played at a competitive level or anything like that. What happens is the community says like, whatever, we love Pokemon and we are going to develop a rule set that allows us to play the game in the way that we best like. Communities develop around that where community figures share advice with other people, bounce ideas off each other. They nurture up and coming players and they and they like create community spaces within which to interact. And you see that with lots and lots and lots of video games. And basically what is important about it is that everything becomes decentralized. The power goes from the people who created the game to the community itself. The community takes a lot of control in how the game is expressed, sets their own standards, helps people out. And in some ways, because the community has taken ownership of the game, it breeds a really strong, really vibrant community with lots of emotional connection to it that sort of um, it like encourages continued investment of the higher ups in it. And that's where a lot of the coolest and best stuff and most inventive stuff in the gaming scene has come from. I think, I think ideas like brawn that allow powerlifting communities to interact more directly with each other and set their own standards as to like, you know, whether it is, what is, what is considered um, not viable, what's considered legitimate, from a competitive standpoint or whether it's bouncing ideas off each other around training or, or just changing the nature of competition to make things more fun or more inclusive or whatever. I think things like that have the potential to greatly increase the reach of powerlifting. 
My only concern is that I, I'm sure Braun is a paid app. And so anything that sort of gatekeeps around that a little bit reduces the capacity of the community to do that. I think in some ways, Instagram already demonstrates the potential of sort of taking the idea of powerlifting, which is basically trying to get strong at the squat bench and deadlift and democratizing it a little bit because on Instagram, you can post whatever you like. And so there's nothing stopping you going on the internet and saying, I like strength training. And you already find a community because people follow you if you share things that you think are cool. And so there are lifters in Australia or internationally, like my favorite person in the world is Worm Chad. I don't know if you watched him on Instagram where the dude just does the grossest, dumbest feats of strength, but everyone loves it and everyone's in there talking and suddenly like people know Worm Chad's the guy who goes and searches like 220 kilos for no reason. But the fact is that again, the platform allows for that. And so it allows for a broader experience, more sharing of ideas and the community itself dictating the rules rather than everything being top down and particularly in powerlifting where we do operate under federated structures, I think moving from top down towards democratization is probably a good thing because God knows how many times we've complained about the IPF having fucking dumb rules that don't reflect the community values, right? So like in some ways, I think it could be a step in the right direction. It's just whether Braun is the final step. Yeah, that's interesting. You mentioned that this app like is paid and could be that could be a gatekeeping thing. It's also like you have to be an IPF affiliate member to actually enter as well. So like it's yeah. quite restricted at this point. Um, I'm sure there are more competitions like this out there that we haven't heard of as well. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely think like for me, the gold standard of powerlifting is in-person competition, like standing next to the person that you're competing against and you know beating them or them beating you. And I don't see a way where like the online space can can replace that, but there could be a substitute or, you know. A supplement is yeah. probably the best. Yeah, there, yeah. there could be a, another way to go about it. You know, if, for instance, maybe you don't have a lot of competition close to your house or you don't have the time because of your schedule to get out of town and compete um, and those kind of things, or there's no one in your state who's closely competitive with you and you want, you know, better competition on the internet then those are all options. I think anything that allows the community to engage with the sport on its terms and find like-minded people can only increase the, the like reach of the sport and the appeal of the sport. And if that also gives the community the, the power to determine what are the things that we most value about this sport and so the, the sort of agreed upon like high-end competitive rule set comes to reflect that, then what you'll probably find is that the sport will be performed by more people at a higher level. It may be that, like you said, nothing will ever change from, from competing everybody in the same room at the same time under rules very similar to the IPF's ones currently, probably. But if it creates a space in which people can also come in and do things that are a little bit different or the medium by which we're interacting sort of promotes people being inventive and having fun, then just allowing for that disruption also allows for progression of the sport. That's that's the thing that I think is cool about it. And it, it could also be, you know, something that a competitive, high-level competitive powerlifter does for fun on the side. Like we see mm. the stuff that Ben Rice is doing on his Twitch. Like what does he deadlift? 700 pounds every week or is 800 pounds every week? I, I literally don't even know anymore, but it's awesome. Like whatever it is. Yeah. And, and he's just, he basically calls himself a strength entertainer at this point. 
and like he's just trying to get more people trading, which is great. So I think you seen the thing he did where he was wearing that fake sumo suit thing with the extra arms deadlifting. It's so funny. It's so funny. He's done some. He's done some (laughs) hilarious stuff. Like, didn't he skull like two monsters and then deadlift seven hundred straight after or something or shotgun them? Something like that. So he has a thing. He has a big wall behind him where he writes his subs' names on them, and um. I should say sub, by the way, is subscriber, not like a sub-dom relationship thing, just in case. <laughs> I was going to say this guy's just got... <laughs> anyway, whatever. So he, he writes all his subscribers' names on it, but then for certain amounts of donations or or like just whatever it is, certain durations of subs and so on, they can also say like take a shot of Monster or whatever of your your choice of flavor or like if you donate 50 bucks he'll shotgun one or he'll do a lifting challenge or something so he basically puts himself out there and then people will pay him to do outrageous things and i have so much concern for his heart health because he does quite well so i'm just imagining that somebody is literally paying him to demolish energy drinks like on the daily and i can't believe that he sleeps um but you know well, i mean i, I demolish energy drinks and i sleep very well yeah, but I don't know if you're doing it on the same level as him. And like, if you're streaming to Twitch, peak hours are like degen hours as well. Like you you want to be going at night. So he is there just shotgunning monsters at night training and then having to go sleep after. It's a, it's a rough world. I was actually a Ben Rice subscriber in 2011. On Twitch? No, you no on YouTube. YouTube, yeah. Man, he like his YouTube content was great. Back in the day, I haven't watched a Ben Rice video in a long time, but it was great. He seems like such a wholesome guy, and he's also incredible as a singer. Yeah, um, I was just going to say he used to post his um, opera, his yeah, church he, choir. Yeah, he had a barbershop quartet performance as well that they did um, publicly in some some like judicial chamber or something. It's big marble floors, high ceilings. And it was like beautiful. He's really, really talented, interesting guy. Honestly, really well cut out for being a Twitch lifting entertainer. I Strength guess, is entertainer what is what he calls himself. Strength entertainer. I like that. That's a, that's a potential career path for us all. I mean, if we were Next if we were strong. <laughs> if yeah, I mean, I'm neither strong nor entertaining, but but I make a run at both. All right. Next next question. Also from at lifting cats. Despite the PA issues, gyms haven't rushed to affiliate with APU. Is it wait and see? So I am the world's least aware person of anything happening in the powerlifting world. Always, I'm gonna let Alex. I'm gonna let Alex start, and then I'll add my two cents of gossip after. So obviously, we know that PA basically imploded, and you know a lot of the um, gyms who were affiliated. Um, announced their unaffiliation or deaffiliation um, with PA and a lot of high profile lifters, you know, remove themselves as members. Um, it doesn't seem like a lot of people have rushed to join APU and certainly not very many gyms have rushed to join APU. But I think a lot of that is related to um, to COVID and, you know, all the interruptions that we've had um, with particularly competition schedule. So obviously nationals was supposed to happen and then Sydney stayed in lockdown, then Melbourne went into lockdown and then everywhere was in lockdown. And 
had that not been the case, I think the PA gyms who were running meets would have affiliated with APU to give their lifters a chance to continue to compete. Um, but because there was kind of no real path to competition anyway, it kind of threw a spanner in the works and it's almost made it look as if everyone is waiting and seeing. But I do think that 2021 will see um, a majority of the PA gyms affiliate with APU. Um, I know a few off the top of my head who will be, um, and they are waiting till 2021. Um, but yeah, I, I imagine that APU by the end of 2022 will have more affiliated gyms than PA probably did in 2019. That's my impression as well. Um, so yeah, like when, when the PA thing all happened and then we were in lockdown, when lockdown finished, the majority of my lifters who wanted to compete had nearly no options available to them to do so through till the end of the year. And so I think many have sort of just held their fire, um, you know, kept the powder dry, whatever. Um, and, uh, just doing a little gym test. And I know a number of people who are feeling the same way. I don't know um, to what degree this matters, but I had also heard um, sort of in passing from a couple of people that when the USAPL split from the IPF, there was some talk about potentially forming USAPL international affiliates as well. That's confirmed um, as of this morning. Oh, is it? Yeah. And there you go, guys. Weekly Wade's exclusive. First to talk about it. Um, if you can give us some detail on that, Alex, I'll just, all I was going to say is that it might've been that a couple of gyms are also sort of waiting to see where the dominoes fell on that to determine whether to go to APU or that. Um, and I'll let you know my thoughts on that when Alex has told us the details. I don't know the specific details, but I do know that it would be quite a lot to set up a new federation and then host comps here under the USAPL. So I presume for the moment it would be joining the USAPL and then traveling to the US to compete. So I can't imagine that in the short term, that's going to be anything, um, anything big at all. So, yeah, I have no idea how, how it would work logistically. I don't know why you would have to travel to the States. If a gym here became a USAPL affiliate and they just ran their meets with the same weight classes as the USAPL and the same rules, I can't see why it would be too different. Well, the, but I, the USAPL and the like the IPF, if you were an APU affiliate gym, you wouldn't be able to be a USAPL affiliate gym. If you're an, an IPF member or an APU member, you wouldn't be able to compete under the USAPL. That would be a bannable, no. a bannable offense. No, but what I'm saying is there might be some gyms who just say, actually, we'll go with USAPL instead of APU. I don't know if any would, um, or I certainly don't know of any specifically that have said they intend to. Um, but my understanding is one or two might've been interested in that. I, my personal feeling is I don't actually have strong, like for or against feelings for the APU, but I would much prefer that there was one banner for the most part that people who are interested in competing in IPF ish competitions competed under in Australia, just because I think it would be good for the community and good for the sport as a whole. Yep. So whether that were PA in the past, APU now, or USAPL in the future, the details of it almost don't matter to me. 
But the idea of there being another big federation rift in Australia just frustrates me um, because ultimately I just would rather be part of a large community where everybody has fun and lifts weights yep. than I would necessarily, you know, make a huge political point of it. But that's also because I'm not deeply invested in the things that have actually separated any of the three federations yep. so far. So that actually leads on leads us on to the next question, which a couple of people asked us about um, where do we see the future of powerlifting in Australia going? So I guess we can just continue right on that. I yep. see the APU taking over um, in the drug tested side um, and almost becoming exactly what PA was in terms of size and in terms of unity. Um, you know, when you and I got into the sport, Will, back in 2014, 2013 for you, 2014 for me, um, there was this. We spoke about this in the podcast that we did with Steve. There was this unity um, and there was this, like, you know, if you went to nationals, you knew that you were the best drug-tested national lifter there. Whereas in the last couple of years with the APUPA split, it's been, uh, it's, it has been divided and it's, it's made competition kind of strange and it's made things awkward. So I do see the APU taking over the, the drug-tested side. And for the untested side, I think, you know, we're, we've got something really good going in Australia in the untested side. Pro Raw is a massive event. We get lifters from overseas coming to compete. Um, and we've got some really high-level untested lifters in Australia who compete at Pro Raw. And then, obviously, the the um, emergence of Big Dogs a few years ago, which has then expanded into um, Wildcats, which is the female division, and then the Warriors, which is the under-115 under kilo division as well. So I, I could... I see those continuing to grow and continuing to get lifters from overseas competing at those. Yeah, look, I'm, I more or less agree. Um, you know, like excluding the possibility of some completely unforeseen circumstances further disrupting the scene, I suspect that it's going to be APU at the tippity top for drug tested stuff and yeah, the untested side is already going quite strong. So I don't see huge changes there. What what I am somewhat concerned by, but always cautiously optimistic about is the impact of COVID on the drive of people to compete generally um, because the disruption to competition over the last couple of years has really severely impacted a lot of lifters motivation and engagement with the sport and as things normalize and competitive opportunities re-emerge what will either happen is a new population of lifters who will come to fill the space that some of the lifters who've maybe become disengaged over the last couple of years leave or those lifters will come back but i think there's going to be a little bit of a lag time i wouldn't be surprised if next year is a slightly quieter year overall for australian powerlifting than 2019 was so um, but that's just my, that's just my vibe on the basis of, of how many lifters have been reporting lower motivation and lower desire to compete. And I think that that is very largely situational. If you have COVID and then you have the implosion of PA, which was a very large part of the powerlifting community on top of it, I think that's just taking away a lot of the things that would have made it, um, made it easy and exciting to compete for lots of people. So I think there's, that's going to cause some lasting damage, but ultimately damage that will heal. 
and the shape in which we heal up is just going to be determined by what's available in the competitive landscape. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to say. Do you think that's directly related to the access to competition? Yeah, I do. Um, I think the access to competition. I also think um, I also think there's like a meta psychological layer to it where when training goes from you know, being convenient and a way in which you interact with the community and a part of your everyday routine that sits around your work day and so on. And then suddenly people go from going to work, going to the gym on the way home to see their homies competing every few months in a large, in a large community or whatever, to working from home most of the time, training being something that they do for their general health with whatever's available to them, you know, being forced to sort of change their goals or aspirations around training in the short term and come to terms with that and a loss of the community. I think all of those things also feed into probably a lesser desire to, um, to compete or to pursue maximal strength in the short term. And this is like, this is a discussion I've had with friends who are not even powerlifters who just like training where their attitude around training and their goals around training changed a lot, particularly during the second lockdown that Sydney went through just because they were kind of forced to. Um, and again, I think that those things will change as the environment around, around people changes. But I do, I do think all of those changes to how we sort of operate in life and how we, how we think about our training routines and the purpose of training within our life is going to feed into, yeah, the way, which the way in which we think about training and competition. Yeah. I think for, for sure, like it could go, kind of one or two ways in that instance like you can either go down that path where your training takes a more of a health trajectory and you you know try and lift to feel better throughout daily sorry try and train to feel better throughout daily life or that break could be exactly what you needed to then push you into your next phase of powerlifting competitiveness Um, Mm. because like you know we know a huge problem with with powerlifters particularly young people they have this like too too fast, too hard mentality where they go in and hit it hard for two years, burn out, never come back. This has kind of given people an opportunity to reset a little bit. And this could be exactly what they need to, you know, then find the motivation again to, to go and push. So I think it'll be interesting to see where people fall on that scale and whether we do get an influx of people who've had a bit of a break who want to come back and hit it hard or whether they're going to be new people finding new goals. Um, but I do think 2022 will be a good year for powerlifting competition for sure. Definitely obviously better than the last two. (laughs) Um, we've got a couple of more questions that are kind of federation-y. So um, why don't we just sort of knock them off so we can continue this discussion and then get to training advice stuff. Yep. So, First one is, do you think, you've already half answered this, do you think the 93 kilo class in APU will be more competitive than the 94 kilo class was in PA? Uh, Absolutely, 100%. Um, 93 slash 94 was one of those classes that was quite split when there was the APU PA split. Like the nationals that you came second at, Will, you totaled 675. And so I, that's me beating my chest. <laughs> I honestly wouldn't be surprised if there were 20 lifters who go over 700 next year. Like, yeah, no, I'd I know be certain like, that's the case. I know at least 15 who will go over 700, and I presume there'll be five or so who'll be over 750. Um, and, you know, what that does is it makes for nationals that's like 
truly competitive and maybe to the point where like even making it to nationals, making it to the A group at nationals is like a big achievement for some people. Uh, and I think that's really awesome. 100%. Um, I completely agree. I think if you get two populations of people and you smush them together, then the number of people who are good is going to increase proportionally. So 100%, I think it will be more competitive. I, I think if you were to look pretty much across the board, you would say that everything will be more competitive when you put the two federations together. There might be a couple of weight classes where there are clear outliers where the person who won one is going to win the other one at a canter two. But on the whole, all you're going to be doing is shifting the standard of competition up. And I think that's a really good thing yeah. for, for the sport. And what that the does second, is it, it, it pushes people who are at the top against each other, which then forces them all up. Rising, what is it? Rising tide floats all boats? Raises all ships. Raises yeah, all ships. You know, yeah. <laughs> or lifts. Um, what did you say? A rising tide forces all boats. Floats all boats. Well, it certainly does float the boats. Um, so that's true as well. They just, they float a little bit higher because the tide, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, okay. Next one is just thoughts on moving. I hate it when people say thoughts, but. I knew, I knew you would. I was so going to put a fake question in just from like just a, a random fake Instagram account. Just to see what your reaction was. So thoughts on moving to APU and the two and a half kilo increments for attempt selection. By the way, these last two questions have been my Matt C underscore PT. Um, I think that the one kilo, um, one kilo increment rule was one of the best things, probably the single best thing that came about from the world power thing changes to the rules. I, I really think one kilo one kilo increments are good. They allow for they allow for like even tighter competition at the very high end, and for particularly lighter weight females and particularly on the bench press, they also allow people to more truly and more accurately express their strength and gains that they've made competition to competition. So in some ways, I think it is a shame to return to two and a half kilo increments. I don't think it's going to make the world of difference to myself or to Alex. Um, but I do think that, like I said, particularly in the lighter weight women, it does make things a little bit more annoying because there's a bit of a joke that us and our friend JP or Alex's coach and my client JP talk about with, with like some people's bench press attempt selection, which is literally just throw out their attempt cards. Cause if they hit their lift, they're going up two kilos. And if they miss they're repeating, and there's nothing you can do to change that. So in some ways, um, that will be a shame. And the other thing where you're not able to change your attempts, except for your final deadlift attempt, um, that will also change a few things strategically. But those are really going to be mostly fringe cases that happen at like the higher end national competitions in a local comp. It's going to be much of the same stuff. You just put in the weight that you think people can lift. Mm. Alex? Yeah, so on the second point there, I think like occasionally I would put in a placeholder and then like, you know, go find a video of it and then change it if if that changed my opinion. But yeah, I think that actually puts more pressure on the coach in a good way. It kind of forces you to make the decision in the moment and then have to stick with it and trust yourself. So I actually like the um the no changes until deadlifts. But for the two and a half kilo 
increment. I think like from a coaching standpoint, it just reduces the number of decisions that you have to make. Like if you if you have someone who, you know, your goal squat is 150, like their third attempt's going to be 145, 147.5 or 150. It's like, that's it. Whereas if it was one kilos, you might have six choices. So like it makes things easier for the coach from a decision-making standpoint, but it also reduces the gap between like really good coaches at picking attempts and then the kind of just average coaches. It reduces that gap because if you have a really good coach who knows their lifter to the kilo, you might be able to squeak out another five, six, seven kilos on the total, which could really make a big difference, you know, at the end of the competition. Whereas, you know, now that you have two and a halves, it doesn't really do that. So from a coach standpoint, there are a couple of changes, but I think it just it just makes things a little bit easier. Do you reckon that if you were to like graph all of the attempts made with the one kilo increments available, that there would be certain numbers that were much more popular than others? Like as in first squats, do you think 242, 245, 247 and 250 say would have been more popular choices than 241, 244, 246 and so on? Probably, yeah. I reckon there would have been. Um, I like. I'm sure you would have situational factors driving you to take certain one kilo increments, but I think people probably regressed in lots of cases towards two and a half kilo increments anyway. Again, I reckon that difference would have been nearly entirely, um, nearly entirely removed if you went and looked at lightweight female bench press, where like your attempts are determined by basically what they can lift. But at the higher ends of strength, I wouldn't have been surprised if we had been regressing towards certain increments anyway. Yeah. So I, I've mentioned what it does for the coach, but for the athlete, it just, like you said, this it becomes harder to show progress if there has been small progress made. Um, you know, you could improve your bench by two kilos and maybe you did an all-out grinder at 65 and then the next comp you do, you smoke 65 and you miss 67.5. Like the scorecard would read the same number, but you've clearly improved. So that can yeah. kind of be a bit frustrating. Um, but also for the athlete, it you now have to win by two and a half kilos again. You can't, unless you win on body weight, you can't just win by one kilo, which again, seems it seems arbitrary and it seems like it makes a lot more sense if, if we traveled in ones. Um, but yeah, overall, I'm kind of neutral on the change. It doesn't bother me a whole lot. Um, I did like the option. I did like to have all of the options as a coach and as a lifter. Um, but yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. Next question. Uh, where are we? From Forged SNC, how would you program top and back offsets using RPE and when would you use them? I'll okay. Go I'll go first. I was going to say, this could be a long discussion. Alex, can you monologue very quickly? I'm going to be back in 20 seconds. Well, I was going to keep it quite simple. Oh, um, no, just monologue. Give him, give him the monologue. I'll be back. <laughs> so um, for top sets, I generally use top sets as indicator sets. So it tells us whether what we've been doing in training has been successful and how successful has it been. So when you program a top set using rpe we need to be careful that we're not using too many reps and we're not training too close to failure or too far from failure so there does seem to be a bit of a sweet spot here 
And, you know, for me, the way that I see it, it's between one and three reps, probably between six and eight and a half RPE. Um, so, yeah, if you're hitting within that sweet spot, you're getting a decent indication of where your top end strength is, which is what I would consider to be the primary reason for using um, a top set in the first place, whether that is an RPE target or whether it is load specific. Um, for back offsets, I tend to use RPE as a way to kind of ensure that we're doing training that is hard enough. And that's basically as simple as, as it is. And it doesn't have to be a particular small range like the top set range. It could be a lot broader. You could do sets of three. You could do sets of 10, sets of 12. Um, RPE, five all the way to 10, depending on what the goal is. Um, but again, it's going to be yeah, dependent on the goal. Will? So I think the the biggest benefit of RPE broadly is that you you basically let the intensity or like the weight on the bar change to better reflect your training intentions or the intention of your prescription by giving people flexibility to choose. And so if you're trying to determine whether to use a a fixed load or RPE, then the kind of question you need to ask yourself is, well, which of these is going to best best capture my my intentions for the session? Um, you know, and for the given athlete, which is likely to result in them doing training closer to what I intended. So there might be times when you would want to constrain somebody's load selection. And when that's the case, then maybe using a fixed load prescription or using a percentage-based system would work. And then for other times, I think RPE is probably the system that best captures um, or best allows you to account for the variability in performance we see day to day. So a couple of examples. Um, there was a paper that came out recently that was actually on session RPE, so not on reps and reserve anchored ratings of RPE of a set, but session RPE where you just rate how difficult was, was this training session. And you can use that to track basically how much stress you're subjecting athletes to, particularly if you have a measure of how much time they were subjected to a given session RPE for. And an observation that was made in the paper, it's really, it's good. It's worth reading because there's lots of interesting little insights into it that you can relate to powerlifting training. But one of the insights um, was that lots of athletes tend to have their difficulty regress towards a middle ground. So sometimes their highest intensity sessions end up coming back towards moderate difficulty and their deliberately easy sessions bump up towards moderate difficulty. And so you don't quite get the degree of undulation that you would want. I think in powerlifters, that can be true. Um, but I'd say in the case of top ends, like top set work, most people aren't really undershooting their top sets chronically. There's only a few people I know who do that. Most people want to lift heavy. But in the case of rep work, sometimes things do move towards moderate difficulty when say you either want it to be hard or more often you want it to be really easy. So one instance in which I wouldn't use RPE as often would be in prescribing deliberately really easy sessions. Um, you either need to use a slightly different, like slightly different language to frame your RPE, or I would just use, I would use like a fixed intensity. And if we extrapolate that same example to thinking about top sets, there might be certain instances in your training where you don't actually want the top set to be top set performance to be really hard. You might just be wanting to give somebody exposure to adequately heavy weights for them to get some practice before they go and do their rep work. 
So say you're in an off-season block and you want to give your lifter a top single or a top double for some high-end strength practice, but you don't really care if it's RPE 5, 6, or 7. You just want it to be heavy enough. And so in that instance, you might just prescribe like a 1 by 2 at 85% or something, and it's going to be heavy enough to do the job without necessarily murdering them. But then you want to ensure that their back-off work is close to the appropriate difficulty for the day and giving them the freedom of load selection with the RPE can be good and can also allow you to track progress across the block better because you can see, you know, what is their, what is the intensity in terms of weight on the bar versus the RPE rating on a week by week basis. So you can use that to more organically track progression and you're using the top set for practice. And then here and there, you'll want to flip those things around where you say, well, actually, I'm really interested in you expressing strength. So say this might be during a strength block or as you're approaching a peak. And in that instance, you might say, okay, well, I want you to do your top set at RPE eight, but then you can still use, um, you could use a, like a percentage of your estimated maximum or a percentage of your true competition maximum on your back off work, just to ensure that they get some volume in and roughly a productive zone um, with a little bit less concern for exactly what the RPE is for those sets. Or you could even combine the two. So maybe you say, let's do a top single at RPE eight, and then we're going to drop 12% and do four sets of three. Um, you know, that could work totally fine as well. And you could even say, let's drop 10 to 12%, do four sets of three and your RPE target for this set is going to be a seven. I made those numbers up, but you know, let's do that. And then that still gives them some freedom to adjust the load in case things are feeling way too easy or way too hard, but you've used your top set to maybe better gauge their capacity for performance on the day rather than constraining it so that they don't get unnecessarily tired prior to doing their training. So in all of those instances, all you're really doing in determining where you're using your RPEs or where you're using a fixed load prescription is in saying, well, what's the intention of this session? How do I best communicate it so that the athlete can go and do close enough to what I want? And then you just write the language on the paper that best conveys that and then talk to your athletes. I don't think it is, I don't think it's an entirely chalk and cheese comparison and just understanding, yeah, basically what your athlete's going to do with what you write on the piece of paper and and what their tendencies in terms of decision-making are might tell you exactly like, you know, where you land on that on that pendulum or on that spectrum. That makes sense as I said it. Yeah, absolutely. I think like to summarize what you said, Will, it's less about RPE or percentage or load prescription. It's more about putting the right weight on the bar for the right number of reps. That's something that Mike T says all the time. That's kind of our goal as a coach and the goal of the athlete is to do the right amount of training, essentially. And how that's written down is less important than the general theme of training moving us in the right direction. Just in case, um, good old forged SNC, by the way, was literally just asking, how do you do it? As in like, <laughs> as in like what do you do? You can literally write one by three at seven and three by five at seven. That works fine. <laughs> Your lifters will figure it out. You can use the top set to establish a percentage daily max and then have fixed load drops or tell people to do to sorry to do weights at a percentage of your daily max that works fine you can have load ranges and a target rpe to help guide load selection a little bit better that works totally fine um what are other methods that you can do um, um something that i use for for back off sets is an rpe cap 
So I might give you a load range and then a rep range as well, and then cap at an RPE. You cap each set once you hit that desired RPE. That's another, yeah, that's a good one. Another oh, another good one that I've come to do a little bit more often is tell people if they're doing sets across what I want their first set to be. Um, because that way, once they've picked the load, they just keep doing sets there. And so if I tell them, you know, do three sets of six, first set target RPE seven, if they miss in their first set, their RPE target, they can still adjust. But if they do their first set at RPE seven, and then they tell me that I still ask them to record their last set RPE. If they say my last set was an RPE nine, still useful information, but that just makes the decision-making process easy too. So you can basically frame it any way you want. And going back to the themes of what Alex and I were saying before, it's more just sort of determining how can I convey the intention of this training session to my athlete well. So maybe just give some thought as to what you want the session to look like and feel like, what type of decision-making process you want your client to go through, and then how would you write that on a piece of paper to make the most sense? And you'll come to your own way that makes sense. Yeah, and when you know your athlete better, you'll be able to put down on paper what they're going to respond to as well. Yeah. Yeah, my athletes are rat dogs. They don't do their program anyway, so it doesn't really matter what I write down. You know, <laughs> anything could happen. It's chaos training in Burke Methods. Cool. Are you calling out JP there for missing a bench the other day? Oh, uh, did he do it again? Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, J- JP is not too bad um, here and there. Here and there, he likes to overshoot, but he always, I don't know if he's lying to himself. He rationalizes his overshoots quite well. So he was saying he had inclined bench on his program, but he was training at General Schuss place and um, yeah, they don't have an inclined bench. So he, so he did a so bench. So he just maxed out. He <laughs> I, no, I <laughs> laughed at him for that one. That <laughs> honestly, th- like this is a completely separate topic of discussion. But one of the funniest things about being a coach is I, th- I coach 40 athletes, I think, right now. And you look at their decision-making sometimes and you just pull your hair out and you go like, why are you doing this? You should know better. And then I walk into the gym and God only knows how many times I've made the dumbest decisions in my own training <laughs> because I just feel like it. And I think like when you do that enough for yourself, you come to have a little bit more empathy for you, for your athletes doing things where they should know better. Like it's still part of your job to say, Hey, like let's make some more constructive decisions next time. But you do come to understand, like you just get sick of making smart decisions and want to just cut sick and have fun. And you know, if people do that in a largely harmless way, honestly, like it's probably not going to completely derail the train, derail the ship as Alex would say, um, derail derail the the ship as the tide raises, unrail Um, the boat. Yeah. Unrail the boat. You just, you know, if you train hard enough, long enough, and don't get hurt, you'll probably get stronger. And so here and there, if, you, if your boy decides he's not going to do his incline bench, he's going <coughs> to max out in this flat bench and miss. <coughs> You're right Sorry, there, Alex. My, mon- my monster went down the wrong hole. <clears throat> um, yeah, good. here and there, if, you're, if your athlete does that, you just, you just roll your eyes and carry on. All right, moving on. From David Dobson, does conjugate max and dynamic effort have its place in powerlifting off-season training? No. No, just kidding. It's okay. Um, Alex, you didn't even smirk at that. I wanted to yell and like really slap my thigh. 
But the problem is that my microphone is so much louder than Alex's that if I did that, I think the computer will explode. Um, okay. A more, probably a more helpful way to think about this than just answering like, does conjugate training have its place is just thinking sort of on the broad spectrum of training that could contribute to you getting better at powerlifting. Does conjugate training even fall on it at all? And I think the answer is like quite clearly yes. If you're in the off season for powerlifting and you say, well, look, I'm going to do some training method where I go and I do some heavy lifting on all three lifts once a week, that's going to be sufficient for strength maintenance. Obviously, you could do it better or worse ways if you were doing your max effort day on something approximating your competition lift most of the time. Probably going to be better than doing something completely bizarre that has nothing to do with your comp lift. But let's just say I do some heavy lifting on the movement patterns once a week. I have another day that's much lighter. It's probably too light to be great, but it's much lighter. It doesn't matter. And then sandwiched either side of it, I'm doing a whole bunch of hypertrophy work on the relevant muscles. Could that feasibly make you better at powerlifting in the long term? Certainly. Could you do things better? I would argue yes, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to do things better. If you were to say, I really enjoy this training system. I'm doing it for a bit of a break. It is sufficient, like I said, to at least maintain strength. There's nothing inherently damaging about that structure and it's not so non-specific that it's not likely to contribute at all. Then in that case, totally. I think it's better in application for like athletic training, probably, than it is for powerlifting training. But it's not bad. And if you wanted to do it, I wouldn't be like, don't waste your time. You can by all means go and get stronger doing that, I think. Alex? Yeah, I agree, Will. Um, when I like look at how I structure my programs now, it almost resembles like Westside. And that's going to sound like really strange because I've bashed Westside heaps on this podcast before. So much. But, but people couldn't change. It, it's not exactly like conjugate. It's just taking the elements from it, like you said. If we're doing max effort work, that's going to be really conducive to strength gain and in an off-season period, strength maintenance, like you said. But it's important that it's the right amount of difficult. If you are going full out max effort at 10 during an off-season, it's probably not what you want. And particularly if you're doing it on lifts that aren't the main lift, like in the, in the actual conjugate system, they don't really touch the main lift at all. And if they do, it's like one once a month. Hmm. So in the in the context of like does con does the actual conjugate method is that good for powerlifting off season trades? Probably not, but there are ways we can tinker with it to make it really effective. So for the max effort stuff, if your single your max stuff is like below eight RPE, then that's probably fine. For the dynamic effort stuff, like Will said, it probably is too light. But you could tinker with it and you could do it and another you could do it between sixty and seventy percent one RM and that would be perfectly sufficient for technique practice. And then the third element is obviously all the the um, accessory work, which is obviously exactly what we want to be doing during the off season. So if we take the elements of conjugate system and we kind of use our brain a little bit and say like, okay, how can we make this slightly better for powerlifting? then there's absolutely stuff that you can take away from it. I'm going to, this isn't that hot of a take, but a couple of slightly hot tweaks on that. 
I think that your max effort work could be harder than at eight. It might not be maximally productive to go really hard. Maybe it'll contribute to more fatigue than you need. But I also think there are some people who, and particularly with like, with, you know, um, like a little bit of exposure to it, build up some tolerance to training quite hard. And if you're excited to go and do that, totally fine. And I think that you could still cycle lifts on that max effort day. I just wouldn't go crazily far away from your competition lift. So if week one, you worked up to a heavy triple on your comp squat, week two, you worked up to a heavy single on your pause squat, week three, you worked up to a heavy double or set of four or whatever on your pin squat. And then week four was your halfway deload week or something where you just did like three ramping fives on something different, a high bar squat. And then you went back through that cycle would probably be fine. And I do think that your dynamic effort work would be more productive if it was in heavier intensities than they do for West side stuff. And you got to remember a lot of those West side percentages are based off of a multiplier max in full equipment and then they're training raw. So like already the training is substantially heavier than you would think looking at it. I think it would be more productive for it to be heavier. I don't really think that it's actually fantastic technique practice to do lifting at 60 or 70% of your max anyway, because if it is too easy, you're literally not developing technique because you're not challenging it. But where I do think I might have some value is literally just giving you a chance to move some weights quickly and feel quite recovered while maintaining some energy to push that accessory work hard. So you could have the choice of turning that day into like some harder um, repetition effort work or getting some more volume in at generally higher intensities whilst keeping lots of reps in reserve. So you could do like 10 singles at 80 or 85% or something on all your lifts. That would be fine. But then it no longer looks like West side. But what you might just do in this context is say, I already have one heavy day of lifting per week. I'm just going to go shift some tin and make it quick and easy on this day and then smash my accessories. And again, in an off-season context, you're doing enough for strength maintenance and then you just go and do a bunch of hypertrophy work. It's okay. It's probably not perfect, but it's totally okay. And if somebody was like, this is really good fun and it's what I want to do, I'd be like, okay, off you go then. Yeah, the the fun element of it is often overlooked. We're always looking at like what's quote-unquote optimal from a physiological standpoint, but psychologically, if someone is really invested in it, they're going to give it more effort. And, you know, sometimes that could mean exactly... Wait, that could be exactly what they need. Um, when was the last time, Alex, you lifted with chains? I actually haven't benched with chains since 2012. I think I was 2011. Can I just say, fucking sick, dude. <laughs> so much fun. <laughs> I would love to do some chain work right now. I actually yeah. think we have some chains at Steed. I might go off program tomorrow and just do some bench. When chain. I was working at um, at Scott's, we had chains and I used to train with the head of basketball like after I'd coach in the mornings. Yeah. And we used to just do chain bench like every Tuesday. Yeah, it it's sick. Yeah, so like chains, weight releases. If If I could do all that stuff for fun, I would. And I actually do, I did... I have done like a whole bunch of timed set work in the past. I've done I've done squat doubles every 60 and 70 seconds way back in the day. That was okay. I actually really enjoyed doing it for deadlift. For bench, I found it really sucked because the setup's annoying and so on. But like there's elements of it where I'm like, that's kind of fun and engaging. And like you said, the fun element is often underestimated. I think in your off season, if you're doing enough to broadly 
shift the dial in the right direction and you're having fun and feeling good, that's sick. So that's my answer is, yeah, go for it and have fun. To, to go back to the um, max effort, you mentioned that it could be harder than at eight. I was kind of mm. referring to if you do select the competition lift and the reason why you probably wouldn't want it to be harder than at eight is because your performance probably won't be very good if you're deep into an off season and you're not doing very much specific stuff. So mentally, like if you hit a single at eight and it happens to be like 20 kilos less than your best single at eight, it's probably not very motivating and it's probably not, doesn't give you that satisfaction and it's probably not worth being in there at that point. Yeah, sure. I can, I can definitely get around that. But again, there are just some people who go and kill themselves week in, week out, and they do fine and feel good. And if that's you, then go for it. I wouldn't want a deadlift at 10 every week. I can tell you that much for free. Oh, God. Once a year. Once a year. Next question. Um, from Matt C underscore PT, so Matt Cunningham. Again. Nerves for competition. How, did you, how to deal with them? Um, it's been like two years since I dropped my mum's legendary quote, which is it's okay to have butterflies so long as they're flying in formation. Um, and I said that initially in the episode that we did with Liz Craven, where she spoke about how she had to learn to deal with her nerves and realizing that they were almost a sign of her body becoming ready to perform. I think one of the exciting things about lifting at competition and about any competitive endeavor is that your performances actually do start to matter a little bit. And I think that that can be really facilitative. I personally like feeling that way because it makes me excited to go and try my best. So I think the first, the first stage to dealing with nerves for competition is recognizing that they're a normal part of the experience and beginning to build a mental framework around them that tells you that not only should you expect them, but that they can help you. So understanding you're going to feel nervous, it's your body getting ready to perform, um, and then giving yourself some productive things to do with it. So channeling that energy into one or two things, understanding how nervous or how excited it's good for you to feel to perform well, and these are skills you can practice in training or just by doing a bunch of comps. I think those things are good. Then on top of that, you want to provide yourself an environment or like um, or a sequence of training leading in to competition that also helps you keep those nerves under control. So I think having having an attempt plan that somewhat reflects what your capability is going to look like in training, having training that actually adequately prepares you for performing with top, top end weights. So having some exposure to reasonably heavy singles under competition demands that you hit reasonably well and that somewhat relate to your attempts. So say having had a few weeks where you're squatting your opener and making it look good, things like that can be helpful having a coach on side that's helping guide you through the process so you know where you've got to be and when, so deferring some of the decision-making stuff, not changing too much about, you know, your nutrition and your hydration and stuff around competitions so that you're you're comfortable with the things that you are doing around your performance. So you can say, look, I've set myself up to do as well as I'm going to do today. My nerves are a normal part of being here and then just going and letting rip. I think all those things help. And then finally, there's just time and experience. You're going to be really nervous at your first powerlifting comp because it's new. It's just like when you take a dog to a new environment and then you chain it to a post, they absolutely freak out because they don't know where they are. That's going to be you at your first comp. But once that dog knows that this is the post that you chain it to when you're waiting for your coffee, they start, they start falling asleep on the footpath because they're, they're comfortable in the environment. 
you're going to be the same way. Do a few competitions, get used to that process and get used to get used to those fluctuations in how your body feels and how your mind is going across the day. And I think you'll be a lot less nervous in the future. Alex? Yes, there's a couple extra things. First of all, I agree with everything that you've said. And I didn't even really consider the training aspect of it. I was kind of just only only thinking about the day itself. But there's some things you can do in developing your routines, which can really help you in competition, particularly with your like lift setup, you know, touch the bar this way, step onto the platform this way. Those kind of things will take over once you practice them enough. And then you won't have to think about them when you, when you, once you actually get on the platform. And that's something that's really important. We don't want to be spending our energy thinking about, oh, where do I put my hands? Oh, where do I put my feet? We want to just use our energy for the actual lifting portion. Um, the other thing with developing routines is it's around food. Like don't eat food that you wouldn't usually eat on comp day and then you'll start to feel sick in the stomach and then maybe that will contribute to even more nerves. Um, the music that you listen to, listen to the same music in competition that you do in training. Like have go-to songs for your squat top set. Have a go-to bench, so- bench song. Have a go-to deadlift song. Can I drop in just very quickly? Do not listen to this song unless you want to overshoot and hit a big PB. The song is the ABC News remix by Pendulum. Do you know it, Alex? No. It pops off so hard. I I thought it, I, when did I come across it again? I came across it during lockdown and honest to God, it bangs so hard. I'm going to send it to you after this. But I've mentioned it to a few people recently and every single person who has recognized it has been like, oh my God, like, yes. And every person who hasn't recognized it, who's listened to it, has been like frothing at the mouth. Do not listen to that at a competition unless you want to win. So do listen to it. (laughs) Don't listen to it. (laughs) It could be dangerous, the amount of strength that you express. For your competitors. Yeah, they may not have enough weights. ABC News Pendulum <laughs> Remix. Be careful. Very careful. People are going to be scrambling out the back to get the extra set of 25s. <laughs> yeah. it's Oh, man. The crowd will try to lift if they play that through the speakers. So just be very careful. Sorry, um, Alex. Back to what you were saying. That yeah, was just so, an important content warning. So, yeah. Developing, developing routines that you can carry into comp day are going to be really important. And that's going to really help with your nerves. And also practicing competition commands. Like don't go into a comp without doing a few of your bench singles with comp calls. You'll be surprised how long they hold you for at the top um, before a bench. So if you're worried about that, practice it. Practice your squat calls. Get referees for to check your depth. Um, send your videos to your mates and ask them if it's depth. That should take some of the nerves away and just put another thing in the back of your mind that you're not don't need to be thinking about. Um, and the last thing was be in the moment. Now I've, I've experienced this a lot of times where I've been so anxious and kind of absent from the competition that I've had to like get myself away even further by like taking too much caffeine or getting too psyched up, which never really actually helped my performance. Something that I've found has actually helped my performance is being aware of my surroundings. Like, look someone in the eye and you'll actually feel like you're there and you're actually living. Whereas like in do the not, past. 
do not look someone in the eye if you've been listening to the ABC News Pendulum remix because they will be frightened. In shut up. <laughs> in the in the past, I've been like very hesitant to like look at the crowd or you know do certain things because I was so anxious and nervous. Whereas, like, I actually think it can help you perform better if you understand that you are where you are. And something that I've done, something that I've done a lot lately is I'll give my handler a fist bump before I go out. And it like that contact with my hand makes me like feel like I am in the competition. And I'm present in the competition. And then it just makes everything feel like more in the moment as opposed to in the past where I felt like I was having an out-of-body experience watching myself lift. I think I'm probably going to misuse the word, but I think they call they call it centering the psychological strategy of having one or two tactile cues that help you bring yourself back into yourself. So one of my lifters used to um, what did she? I think Liz stomps. That's that's part of the reason she stomps walking onto the platform. One of my lifters used to squeeze something, um, and I remember talking to somebody who recommended that I that I, and this wasn't for powerlifting, but in general, when I wanted to sort of center myself was to focus on a few sensations. So you can run through the sensory check of what's a couple of things I can see, what's a couple of things I can hear, what's a couple of things I can feel, what's a couple of things I can smell. And just going through that to bring your senses back into your body um, helps you be present more. But I think that the term for it is centering. And given that I did no research (laughs) to back up that claim, Google it yourself just to be sure, but it is a legitimate strategy that can help certainly bring your focus back inwards, which can be helpful. Yep. Um, next question from Chev Lift. So this is Darcy. What kind of pathways into coaching do you recommend? And this is um, into becoming a coach. I messaged him about this. He's, he wanted to know what kind of steps you would take if you were interested in becoming a powerlifting coach. We've answered this one a number of times. Um. To sum up, broad experience is good. I think that you should get some coaching experience or some personal training experience with people who aren't powerlifters as well because a large part of your success long-term isn't just going to be domain-specific knowledge. It's going to be your ability to interact with people and coach them, and you will draw skills from other fields that help you. The things that differentiate you as a coach or as a powerlifting coach aren't just the special powerlifting things you know it's the little bits of extra flavor around who you are and what you do that interest people and you know being yourself so i would make sure you go and you interact with a whole bunch of other populations learn as much as you can do some general personal training on top of that i think you should train for powerlifting itself and have a coach yourself or have a couple of coaches ideally have some training partners too all of those people will be mentors to you but just that exposure to experience and that ability to begin to practice your skills so do a little bit of self-coaching, get in the habit of analyzing your lifting, looking at your program, determining what you're doing and why, how you can make good decisions, helping other people do the same thing and so on helps. I would then start volunteering to help other coaches at competitions. So just help handle some people so you get some exposure to that environment, get some chances to have a dry run at making those decisions. You might want to help out a couple of your friends with training, write them some programs, get some feedback start to determine what works, doesn't work, and so on like that. And as you begin to do those things, particularly if you're already offering personal training services, 
people will begin to gravitate towards you on the basis of your enthusiasm. So the enthusiasm with which you engage with your own training, but also on the basis of sort of like, I hate, I hate this phrasing, but like the good energy you're putting out in the world. If you are helping people, they're getting some success and you're doing so within the domain of powerlifting, people will begin to, will begin to refer people to you and they'll refer people to you who you're qualified to help. So last time we answered this on the podcast, I said like, Ray Williams isn't going to come knocking at your local fitness first and say, hey man, I need you to fix my squat if you're just starting out. But if you are helping a bunch of people get involved in powerlifting, there'll be a few lifters who aspire to what you're doing, who are new, who are going to come and ask you for help um, because they're interested in the sport and you're already in that space and you can help them do that. And before too long, you'll have a roster of people who you are training for powerlifting and you'll have a little bit of experiences. Good grief. And you'll have a little bit of experience. Um, you'll have a little bit of experience with which to draw off and help them. And then once you are once you are at that point, then you might want to start advertising yourself more widely. And as you as a lifter get a little bit more qualified, and as some of the people that you've been working with over time get a little bit more qualified as lifters, you'll start taking on higher and higher level lifters as well. So the quick summary of that is basically. Give yourself a broad base of training experience. Give yourself, and that includes training other people experience and training yourself experience. Get involved in the powerlifting scene. Begin taking people on initially for free and then just at a low level so that you can build up, again, more and more space um, or more and more experience. Do that and people will start coming to you. And then we can talk about ongoing education and things after that. But that's where I'd start. Alex? I don't have anything to add other than having that general knowledge base as well first so learning the basics for biomechanics and anatomy programming technique um for programming like you mentioned dissecting your own program that you get from your coach you can also just go on the internet and look up a whole bunch of free programs and try and decipher you know what principles are being adhered to what aren't what would you change you know what what does this program do well what do they not do well and, and those kind of things but yeah i think mostly it's going to come down from down from general to specialized so start general with your knowledge start general with who you work with and then start to specialize and you know 100%. like you said will your enthusiasm is going to carry through and your training itself is going to carry through so if you're working at a like local gym and you do powerlifting train at your local gym every now and again and people will see you and they'll ask questions about it and potentially you can gain some people who might be interested as well. With the analyzing programs thing, here's a skill that I think a lot of coaches miss, or I don't know if they miss, but maybe they just don't go through this process. If you have been training for a while and you've written some programs and things, you should be able to just look at a program on a piece of paper and in your mind, run through that program and think how hard would it feel for me to do a couple of these sessions and like, I can certainly do that. If you send me a free program from the internet, I could look at the sessions and just be like, in my head, this would be a six or seven out of 10, or this would be an eight or nine out of 10 difficulty. And I could even roughly start gauging how hard the top sets would be for me just straight off the bat without even having done it. And I think being able to go through programs on the internet and vaguely have an idea of what the experience of doing that program would be like just by reading them actually helps because that should be a sanity check for when you're writing programs for your clients 
a few of my mentees, when I looked over programs that they had written for people, I would look at them and I'd, and I'd sort of say, you know, when I do that check on these days, one or two of them might be outrageously hard. One or two of them might be really easy and there'd be logistical problems that might come up. Like, you know, you've already done like a max effort squat and then you're going to do a max effort deadlift on the same day and you've already done six or eight sets of accessories between the two. And like, just looking at this, this doesn't seem like an experience that that would go well for me. Get in the habit of just doing that for yourself. Even if you don't run a program, just imagine how it would be to run it. Maybe even crunch some of the numbers initially and start developing that sense. Because I think once you can meld that experiential knowledge with an ability to sort of put yourself in your lifter's shoes, you'll do a better job as a coach as well. Yeah. And the other thing with analyzing programs is it's kind of hard to say, oh, this has too much of this or not enough of this without knowing who the program was written for. So I think something that you could do, and a lot of coaches would be happy to do this with you if you um, you know, ask for their time, get them to go through a program template or not, sorry, not a program template, a program that they've written for their client and explain some of the decision-making that's gone into it and rationalize some of those decisions. And I think that would help you like contextualize how programs can end up looking really, really different, but still be equally effective between different people. 100%. The other thing on pathways into coaching that we recommend, neither of us mentioned any formal education, um, but I do think that there's definitely some value in pursuing some. You don't have to go to university. It was something I did. It was helpful, but you don't really have to do it you will need to have a cert three and four or equivalent depending on where you are to legally personally train people certain federations require you to get a coaching certification underneath them so if that's the case you're going to have to do that um but then you can look for mentorship from people who work in the space so whether it is just a general education style mentorship or you work one-to-one with a more experienced coach who's going to help guide you look for those things too but that stuff is and this is a somebody who runs a mentorship and would love for you to come and do it that stuff that stuff is kind of the icing on the cake you don't need to do that to get started because that stuff is usually focused on domain specific knowledge and business skills both of which are important but they are secondary to you having or well, business skills are important but they are secondary to you having just the broad strokes there which is some engagement in training and some enthusiasm. And you can always improve at that stuff. Like I've now been coaching in one way or another for seven, eight years. And every year I still learn something and think something I knew six months ago was a little bit dumb. So you don't need to be the finished article to start, but those things can certainly help. And so once you have sort of got those things in place, I would then put yourself out there and absorb absorb knowledge through more formal formal means from as many people as you can and begin to sort of put it against your experiences and your current ways of practicing and saying, well, what can I draw from this that is going to help? How does this new knowledge help me reconcile experiences that I've had that I haven't quite been able to explain yet or help me give me new tools with which to address problems that have up until now been real problems for me? You can start doing that then, but that's the final step in my opinion is going and doing that and you do that over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. You don't do that at the start before you're ready. You know, you just yeah. continue to do that forever if you want to get better. Yeah. And the last thing that just popped into my head was don't try and be a carbon copy of who your coach is 
or who some other coach that you look up to is like you're not going to be as good a version of them as they are so you need to be you need to be the version of yourself and that means like not copying all of their programming strategies think for yourself and you know start to think about what what you believe in is that is different to other coaches and you know run with that because you can only be the best you, which is, sounds so cheesy, but you can only be the best you. You can't be the best Alex Hayes or the best Will Berkman, although you probably could be better than the best Will Berkman. Yeah, it's not too hard. By the way, in saying that, that doesn't necessarily have to be just from a programming perspective because there's a reason why conventional wisdom is conventional wisdom in most programming stuff. It's because it's got some basis in practice and working. Um, yeah, it's just the easiest can... one to talk on. Yeah, but it can certainly, um, it can certainly be the case in actually how you go about coaching. So whether it's how you structure your business or just the manner in which you communicate and, you know, maybe some of the, the flavor in your exercise selection or whatever it happens to be. Like you don't have to communicate in a really scientific way to your clients if the thing that is your asset is that you're enthusiastic and engaging and stuff like that. Lean into that. Be the most enthusiastic, engaging, encouraging person ever. You know, we spoke to Sam Hall, say, the other day, and he, he's he got that classroom teaching experience. And so he's just got a real ability to, like, talk to people on their level, nurture them, help them to discover things and learn on the way. And that's one of the things that sets him apart as a coach, right? So, again, look at yourself and say, what are my assets? Some coaches are really inspirational lifters that train really hard themselves. And they're like, their lifters want to just follow them out of the trench and, you know, straight straight across towards the enemy line because their lift, their coach is just a legend like that. Other coaches are different. Other coaches nurture people psychologically or whatever. Find the things that really speak to you and that you do well and just lean hard into them. Absolutely. Next question. All right, last question from Pat Lawler. What's the worst habits? What are some of the worst habits for new lifters? Okay, I've got a screamingly hot take. Um, so hot that I don't even know that I believe in it. That's how good of a hot take it is. Ready? Trying to do things too well. And by that, I mean, I've never met somebody who was really good at powerlifting who started perfect. But I've met lots of people who are really good at powerlifting who without knowing anything about lifting went in and trained really hard, had a good time, didn't necessarily start with great technique or great programming, but just engaged continually with the sport. And over time, everything got better incrementally. And I think now because we have so much access to good information and so on, there are lots of people who are like so paralyzed with trying to ensure that their program is right and their technique is good before they add any load or whatever, that they kind of get caught up in stuff that is really in the grand scheme minutia. And this isn't really a hot take. I just believe this absolutely at this point. Um, and so when I say like, don't try to start too good, I absolutely think it's important to refine your technique. I think it's like, I think it's important for new lifters to begin to learn to lift within the competition rules to make an effort to get better over time at their technique to do, you know, whatever it happens to be. I think it's important to have some type of structure to your training and so on, but that stuff doesn't have to be perfect to get the ball rolling. And in the case of particularly something like technique, 
even with the best intentions, you're going to be so bad at, say, squats for the first few months to a year or whatever of you lifting just because you're not that used to it and your body's not strong enough to support heavier weights as you put them on your back. That if you worry too much about that, you're not going to get stronger. And it can turn into a really sort of um, self-limiting set of beliefs where you don't try hard enough to actually get better because you're so worried about, is my program right? Is my technique right? And so on. Where in reality, if you had just been really dumb and had no idea, you might have ended up ahead of where you are. And so, so I think the worst habit is to focus on being correct as opposed to trying hard and enjoying it. Because if you try hard and enjoy it, you will get better over time. And in a year or whatever, you'll probably be ahead of where you were. It's not that hard of a take, but Alex, do you know where I'm coming from? Absolutely, man. And, you know, like I, although I do think it's really important for newer lifters to put more of a focus on technique than it is to lift heavy, if focusing so much on technique inhibits your ability to actually try hard, then you're either not going heavy enough or you're wasting your time. So like, but what is your good technique? Here's, I'm going to argue with you, even though I think you agree with me. What is your good technique when you're a brand new lifter? Like if you go to squat, does it have to be perfect or do you just have to get to depth and not fall over and you do a set of five and they're all kind of within 10 or 15% of each other? Like how good is good? Well, obviously the margin for error with good, the longer that you train gets smaller. So so when you're new, good for a beginner, like- yeah, you can get away with doing some shonky reps so long as you're not like putting yourself in dangerous position or like just blatantly not following the rules. Yeah, 100%. But, you know, if I were to, I don't want to call people out that I don't coach, but, you know, our friend Brandon coaches a squad of lifters at the gym that I work at in the mornings. And lots of them are in their first year or 18 months of lifting. And if I walk in, I might only pay attention to them once every month or two. And I might see them do way too cool. But like I might walk in and see one of them do a set of deadlifts where I'm like, that was hard. Three of those reps sucked. It was a set of five. Three of those reps kind of sucked or whatever. But, you know, they're in there trying. And then I don't pay attention to them. And then six weeks later, I come in and the lifters doing 30 kilos more or something, making slightly fewer mistakes. Like they've clearly gotten better. They still haven't gotten perfect between month one and month three. But I think the 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 like margin of productive training is wide and they will have some embedded technical errors that they have to fix over time, but that's just an inevitability anyway. And like you said, if the, if they had just not tried hard enough because of the errors that I'd seen in week one, they may not have ended up past where they were in week six or whatever when I came back, you know? Mm. So it's, again... It's not don't worry about technique. It's clearly important. And if your training sucks and you never practice the same thing, you don't follow a program, you're never going to get better. But don't let the don't let don't be blinded to the forest for the ships. Is that how it's set out? <laughs> um, just like just go try, just go try really hard. Have a good time. Follow your program, ish, and. You know, here and there, if you don't have an inclined bench, max out. But like, just do that stuff. I think you'll get better. I think it's not a great habit to be like hyper analytical when your body's actually not going to respond to your analysis anyway. That's all I mean. Yeah, and and we spoke about this with Mike T. I mentioned that the longer I coach, the 
greater variability I allow for technique. And that like applies even more with beginners. Um, so I guess like the, the main thing in there is like ensuring that you're training hard enough, not worrying about being perfect. Exactly what you said. I think there's a few others. Go on. Um, one that really pisses me off is All right. lifters copying their favorite Instagram celebrity. <laughs> in what respects? Like in, in their lifting style in or all in all respects? In all respects. Okay. In their their lifting style, like people who put dog tags in their mouth and squats now because Russ or he does it, like fuck off. <laughs> okay. Like it's the dumbest thing I've ever seen. I hate it. And, you know, there's there's other things that those top level lifters do. Who they've kind of earned the right to do those things, like such as cutting five kilos to make weight for a comp like that's something that they have to do in order for them to win their weight class if you're just starting out that's not something that you have to do so those are like just easy examples off the top of my head like copying someone who is not in a position where you are like you should be trying to do what they were doing 15 years ago not what they're doing now that they're at the top okay i'll just say yep that's cool i i agree with the sentiment do you have any more Oh, you said you had a few. I was well. One of them I'm, was another. One of them was cutting for meats slash cutting in general. I wrote cutting in general. Like Alex if, is if you're Alex just, is just pro obesity, pro fucking gains. Will no, I I agree. I think on the whole, if you're a new lifter, I like what I do. I don't necessarily say to my lifters you have to gain weight. But when you're relatively new to lifting, I say, look, like there's a couple of ways we can think about nutrition. We can think about nutrition for really dialing in your body composition. Great thing to do when we're really trying to maximize our competitiveness. Or we can think about nutrition as being something that we use to facilitate the best possible training and therefore the best possible outcomes. And I think when you're reasonably new, the latter is so much better. One, because it's normally easier because it's just a matter of giving yourself enough fuel giving yourself some like some peri training nutrition that facilitates your training hard. And it takes the focus away from like, what's my body weight and puts the focus back on what am I doing in the gym? Am I getting better week on week? So what I say to my lifters is let's not worry about cutting to a weight class right now. Let's just worry about eating to support you getting better at training. And if you're getting stronger in whatever respect, things will be good. That almost by definition, unless somebody is starting quite big rules out, cutting really hard because like it just doesn't tend to facilitate the best training. But I think it, I just use that language rather than cutting necessarily. And then cutting for comps, I sort of say the same thing. I'm like, unless you're so close, that it's very easy. Would you rather not just go in and lift a PB at whatever weight you are? Like if it's going to be the difference between coming, this sounds condescending. So I don't always say this to clients, but I'm like, if it's going to be the difference between coming eighth in the weight class above or fifth in the weight class below, like who cares whereas hitting a pb is sick no matter what body weight you are yeah yeah i think the um the the weight class discussion is something that you know you probably need to have early on with people who are you know that way inclined competitively inclined and like it's almost a conversation that you have to have with them like why are you doing powerlifting and if they say to get bigger and stronger then you know you have all of the evidence you need that they shouldn't be cutting down to weight down a weight class. Like if if their goal when they start lifting is to get bigger and stronger over time, then you know you should probably see them 
gaining substantial weight in their first, you know, three years of lifting. And um, sure. I think that's really, I think that's really important is that we see like young lifters, they're under muscled for their weight class in the junior, in the sub junior category. And they want to like win this sub junior national championship and they have to cut five kilos as opposed to thinking five years down the track and, you know, maybe what can I be as an open lifter in five years time in the next weight class? And I think I like, yeah, if, if, if you really take it back to the roots of why they lifted, why they began lifting in the first place, you can kind of get to that conclusion. And there are going to be people who come to you and say like, Oh, I want to be strong, but I also want to have this sick body composition. And then that for them, that may mean they're going to have to do some cutting and they're probably going to limit their top end strength in, in the long run. And that's fine because that's what their goal is. So it's, it's, it's having that chat with that, that client at the start and understanding, you know, what, what they want. I think the important thing from a coaching perspective in this stuff though, is like learning to hear the subtext in what your client says, because usually when somebody comes to you and gives you two completely contradictory goals, there's either something that they haven't really expressed to you or they haven't come to terms with in themselves that's contributing to that dissonance between the two things. And so if you have somebody who's like, I want to get way bigger and stronger, but then at every turn is insisting that they need to lose weight or something. Like, I think it's helpful to point out that that's illogical, but above and beyond it being illogical, you might need to just try and figure out, well, why do they feel this illogical way? Because at face value, it doesn't make sense. So we need to have a deeper discussion and get to the root of it. So listen to subtext, listen to those elements of, of contradiction and sort of say, okay, well, like, yeah, what's the deeper goings on here? Let's have a bit of a talk. And, and it could also come back from, you know, looking at the top lifters out there, like looking at the physiques that they have. They're jacked and lean at the top of the weight classes in, you know, the majority of classes. And like, you know, you could be thriving to get to that position, but that's not what they've looked like their whole life. And without a decent set of, you know, muscle on your frame to begin with, you're never going to have a physique like that. And, you know, sure. that's going to require some building. And, you know, okay, here's another habit that I have, um, which kind of relates to my prior one is just over specialization early. Um, <clears throat> and this is true across most athletic domains, does well to build a big general base before you go to specific stuff. But many of the technical issues that you see in newer lifters, like lots of them will be remedied by more practice. So there's nothing wrong with saying, let's go do a whole bunch of reps on your squat or your bench or your deadlift or whatever it happens to be. But some of them are also just that that lifter hasn't been given lots of different exercises that ask them to sort of organize their body different ways or use different muscles, different ways and things too. And so both because you need to just have a big tool set of motor skills to draw off of, to be halfway decent at anything. And because if you're a new lifter, you probably need to build some muscle. I think it's really helpful to give people some lifts in which they go and they try quite hard, go do some squats, do a bunch of reps, go do some bench, do a bunch of reps, and then just let them go and do some lunges and some push-ups and some pull downs and so on and get, get a little bit bigger. Goodness me, Orbs is on fire today. Um, yeah, just go and try really hard and get a little bit bigger and do some bodybuilding-based training and stuff because there is always time to specialize a bit later. But I think giving yourself, yeah, lots of exposure to lots of variety, trying really hard, enjoying training, building some muscle, all of that can only be good. 
So don't don't think that you have to go to the most specialized routine ever early because it probably won't help you. Yeah, it, it all comes back to like trying to fast forward 10 years down the process. It's like you can't skip all these steps at the start and just end up where you want to be in 10 years. You have to actually go through the 10 years to get to where you want to be in 10 years. And like I was talking to one of my friends who's recently like trying to teach himself how to play basketball. And he sent me some videos of him like, you know, doing behind the back dribbles into like step back threes and stuff, but he can barely dribble with his left hand. I'm like, man, you need to just dribble, practice dribbling with your right hand, dribble with your left hand, practice like, you know, basic fundamentals, learn how to properly shoot, like all of these things before you start worrying about combining it all. And it's very similar to how people consider lifting. It's like, you don't, you barely know how to bench press. You can do five push-ups, and you're trying to learn Japanese grip bench press. It's like, let's, let's not get carried away. Let's like learn the basics. Let's get generally better. And then, you know, when it's time to specialize, you'll know. Like you'll know yeah, so when you need to be this tall to ride this ride. Basically. You'll, you'll, you'll know when there's kilos that can be had by doing something more specifically. And you know, that will present itself. You don't have to rush it. hundred percent. That's all for my habits is, is focusing on the minutia two different ways. Cool. You done? I'm done. Sick. <laughs> well, that brings us to the end of the Q&A, but I want to launch a very quick segment um, that I haven't told Alex about. So Alex, surprise. This also, segment... apologies everyone for Aubrey barking. Um, no, no, it's okay. The mailman came twice. Oh, good. Well, the mailman should know better. He should. Um, you should put a sign out the front when we're recording saying podcast in progress, leave the mail here. Go back to the um, truck. Yeah, exactly. Wait in the truck. Um Okay, this the segment, Alex, is called Don't Mention the War. Right? And it's about our feud with fucking Peak Speak. Because we haven't given the people an update for a while. But the feud is ongoing. Um, we still hate those guys. And if you are a supporter of Weekly Weights and you want to help us bring this war to a speedy conclusion, because it's been going for a while, please like comment subscribe if you're watching this on youtube if you're listening to this on a podcasting app please leave a review and a rating and we'll start reading them online and if those are reviews because we can't strictly say anything defamatory about those criminals shero and thomas but if you say anything defamatory about them we can read it and say that it doesn't express our views even if wink wink nudge nudge it kind of does so don't mention the war. It's just a call to arms. Everyone, please like, comment, subscribe, leave ratings, talk shit about Peak Speak so that nobody goes and listens to them if they're looking at weekly weights reviews because we wouldn't want that. And we'll read it out on air. There's going to be a whole bunch of Burner Will Berkman accounts leaving suspicious <laughs> yeah. comments. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, people who say, I love moustaches but hate Thomas Lilly <laughs> from, from, yeah, Mill Norkman. <laughs> no one will know. No one will know who that was. Um, yeah, that's the segment though. It's basically just please review the podcast, like, share, subscribe, whatever. You know, all the things they say, like they go like, what's up YouTube? That's how we're going to start our next one. What's up YouTube? Like, comment, subscribe, hit that red button down below. Woo! <laughs> Fuck pig speak. <laughs> it's going to be us. That's the segment. I'm done. Nice. All right. That okay. was Weekly Weights. I'm Alex yeah. Hayes. Will. 
Well, uh, talk to you in a fortnight. <laughs> talk to you in a fortnight. Peace, guys.